There are five tests. Jesus gives two of them, and the opposition gives three of them. So that's this chapter. Test number one, Matthew 22, verse one. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. Here's where we're at in the story of Jesus. He did this big loop, started in Tyre, went down to uh, Caesarea Philippi, down to Galilee, all the way down the Rift Valley to Jericho, up into Jerusalem, announces, I am king, uh, goes in, cleanses the temple. You know the story now. So now we're kind of in the midst of that whole story, and there's this reaction, this response to Jesus now, all right? There's the crowds that like him, and there's the crew that like, how can you be doing this? How could you come and rearrange the furniture in our temple, claiming it's yours? So there's all this kind of, mm, in Jerusalem. It says the entire city was stirred up because of him. So now Jesus is addressing this crew. Verse two, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen. And my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. The Greek is emporia, to his empire. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. What a story. So right away we get some hints, and hopefully if you've been tracking in Matthew, you see what they mean. Because in verse 2, Jesus says, did someone hit that? If those can remain on, it would be very helpful for me. If not... Things will change. There we go. Let there be light. And there was light. So if you track with us, when Jesus begins to talk about the kingdom in parable, we should have this kind of, we're primed for it, right? So a couple chapters ago, we had this incredible kingdom story about the last picked and the first paid. 
that the ones that did not make a contract with the master received this massive bonus, the generous king, right? So you have this idea that whenever you see the kingdom of heaven now, you should be primed for like, ooh, what is Jesus going to say? Will it offend me? Will I be part of the crew that gets offended now? So there should always be a little bit of that. So there's this, it's a kingdom parable. And there's this invitation that goes out twice. And here's what it was. A long time ago, if you did weddings 2,000 years ago, you would tell people, hey, I'm having this wedding. But it's not like it is today where you can get a caterer or you can go to Costco. There was a massive amount of preparation that went into getting everything together to actually throw the wedding feast. And you never knew if there's going to be some kind of a hiccup, right? So you had to collect stuff. It'd be like, uh, uh, I was in Vanuatu for a year and we had this massive feast one time and we knew it was coming but the student says, well, well, we'll tell you when it's ready. Because they had to hike like two days and get a cow. And then another guy went and got a pig. And then they brought him out to this place. And they had to collect all these banana leaves and, and get these uh, stones really hot and all this coconut milk. And it took like days and days. And finally, they're like, okay, it's ready. But they didn't know exactly the timeline. That's what's happening right here. These guys had VIP, you know, they'd made reservations. Hey, we're coming. We'll be there tell us when it is. So now this king goes through all this work to make sure that it's ready, make sure it's happening. And then what happens? Well, first they ignore him. Then he sends out more. And one of them says, no, goes to his farm. Another goes to his business, literally his empire. But then verse six is just shocking. The rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. That's really unexpected, right? You should be going, what kind of parable is this? What is going on right here? All right, so today, if we don't go to a wedding, it's not that big of a deal. In fact, you can argue that you're actually helping them. Listen, I'm saving you some money. I'm not going to eat the food. I'm not going to take the little trinkets. I'm saving you money if I don't go. So it's not that big of a deal. But 2,000 years ago, it was a huge, huge deal. What's even more insulting is who was throwing this wedding. It's the king. And who was getting married? His son. And who will the son be pretty soon? The king, right? So they are insulting the king. They're rejecting, if you would, the king. And here's what really is sad. The king had invited them to a wedding, a feast. Come have fun. Come eat really good food, the fatted calf, the best I had, the best the king has. Not all weddings have good food. Do you know that? I've been to some. (laughs) Or you're like, oh man, I'm going to go away hungry from this one, right? The food is not always the best. The cake is never good, is it? The cake is the most deceitful thing at a wedding because it looks beautiful, right? And they taste terrible. It's like a terrible way to start a wedding. Like the most prized thing is deceitful. You should just have ice cream because there's no deceit in ice cream. It's pure goodness. So there's this, right? It's covered with that. Is it called fondant? I call it fondant, right? Do not eat that stuff. It's like gum. It's gross. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. I just say it that way. Fondant. So he's got like the best thing in store for them. Come, celebrate with me. He's not inviting them to a root canal or to come over and move his castle. This is a really good thing. Come here, celebrate with me. And instead... 
they kill the messengers, and then they end up getting killed, right? The king gets angry, sent his troop, destroyed the murderers, and burned their city. It goes from a wedding feast to a war, which sometimes happens in weddings. (laughs) The wedding and then the war. Like, it's bizarre in a way. So so as you read this, you're kind of thinking, what happened to the food, right? He prepared all this food. He goes to a war, comes back and says, okay, it's time to eat. Like, you should be saying this parable is a little bit deeper than just what you see on the surface, right? It's, it's more. But I think all of us can experience when a certain thing that was supposed to be really good goes bad. Like you never intended it to go that way. I wanted a wedding. I ended up with a war. I just wanted a conversation. And we ended up arguing and getting angry at each other. And it was a, something I wanted to be positive and it turned negative. We all sense that. And that's kind of in this story as well. So you can, you can pick it apart pretty easily. The king is the father. The son is Jesus. The the, the invited guests are the Israelites. The the servants that are sent and killed are his prophets and his people. The city that's burned and destroyed is Jerusalem. It's pretty simple to figure that out, all right? But it's interesting, the evaluation of the king. So verse 8, after that's all happened, after, okay, he says this. He said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. This is already, this feast is already, my son is already, but these guys that were invited, they're not worthy. Why were they not worthy? Because they were busy with their empire, with their farm, because they were antagonistic against the servants of the king. It's not that they weren't worthy. It's they deemed themselves unworthy. So you can read Acts chapter 13, verse 46. It's one of my key verses because Paul there preaches the gospel and the people reject it. And Paul says this, you have deemed yourself unworthy. We'll go to somebody else. The king didn't deem them unworthy. The king invited them in. Come in, come to my wedding, please. Twice he invited them in. It wasn't the king excluding them from the kingdom. The king wanted them in. They said, we won't come. All right? So fundamentally, when I look at the gospel, I believe the invitation goes to all, come in. The king doesn't exclude some people. Hey, you know what? You are not part of the chosen. You're out. No, you deem yourself unworthy, so you don't enter in. So then the king says, I will not have an empty wedding. I am going to party, right? I will party. Go out on the main roads and get, invite all these people in. So imagine for a second, you decide to throw a wedding and your invitation is to walk down G Street and 6th Street and invite every single person you come in contact with. What's your wedding gonna be like? Boatnik, right? It's a boatnik wedding. You're going to get Boatnik there. (laughs) And that's why it says the good and the bad. You're getting Boatnik right there. So these guys were unworthy, but then the Boatnik crowd was worthy, the good and the bad. Why were they worthy? Obedient attendance. I'll come. All right. And we'll see what obedience means in a second. 
So if you look at this test, the answer is simple. It's obedient attendance. That's what God's looking for. All right? So you have that. And up to this point, you're like, oh, what a great story. But then it's verse 11. <laughs> verse 11 is like this appendix almost. It's like a tumor. You almost want to like, can we just like not have that part in there? Like, what is this part? This guy comes. He's a 6th Street, G Street dude. He shows up at the wedding. The king sees him out of robe or out of garment. And then the king casts him into what sounds a lot like hell to me right? You're like, oh, that's not so good. I had this little cartoon book growing up and it was this story. And I hated this story. I was mad at the king. I'm like, how could the king do that to somebody? That does not sound like a good king, right? We've all felt like what it feels like to be underdressed at a place. No one like purposely underdresses, do they? Like, this was the, the worst for me probably, the one and only pastor conference I've been to, nine years ago, Washington, D.C. Um, I got invited by a friend at the, kind of the last minute. And so I went with him, Dominic, and we, we went over there. And um, first like, time all the pastors get together, we go into this big hall. Everybody's wearing a three-piece suit. Dominic comes out of the elevator. He's in a three-piece suit. I'm like, dude, you did not tell me this. I'm in this attire right here. I'm like, oh, great. So I'm sitting there. There's probably 500 pastors. I'm the one dude in jeans and a polo. I'm just like, oh, Dom, I hate you. <laughs> right? Until in came the contingency from Hawaii. <laughs> Flip-flops, board shorts, and tank tops. I'm like, hey, come here. Sit right here. I got room. Come over here, bro. <laughs> I was so happy to see them. They're like, what's up with all these stuffy suits, man? <laughs> like, I don't know. I'm with you. <laughs> Being underdressed is not fun. So what, what is happening right here? What's this deal? And the king actually asks him, friend, friend, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? And he's speechless. He doesn't say, well, you know, I didn't have one. He doesn't say, um, I was invited off 6th Street. I didn't have time to go home and get mine. And she just stood there, speechless. Now, why is that? The king would have provided wedding garments at the door. So you have these hints of this in the Bible. You have Joseph, when he has his brothers come, he is prime minister. He's the top dude. He gives to each of his brothers a garment, right? Genesis 45. You have the story of Esther when Haman wants to be praised. He says, I want the royal robes to be put on me. The, the king would have these robes for weddings that when you came, you'd all look the same. That there'd be this kind of brilliant look to you, all white or whatever color it was. So the king would have been providing the garments. But this man refused to put them on. He's saying, I'll come to the wedding on my terms. Or more broadly, I'll come to God the way I want to. I'll get into the wedding based on the way I want to get into the wedding. My moralism, my legalism, my liberalism, my works, whatever it is. That's what this guy is. Now it starts making sense to me. I don't hate the king so much. Because what you see right here is the core of the gospel. And what I love so much about Jesus is this. He is an equal opportunity offender, is he not? He gets both sides here. 
right? So he messes with the liberal mindset, but he also messes with the super conservative mindset, right? The liberal mindset says this, the king accepts all people unconditionally. Brotherhood of man. That's what the liberals want to say. Um, The conservatives say, no way. You better be worthy to be inside of the wedding. You better prove you are worthy to get in here. But that's not the Christian. That's not the king. The king says, I will invite, verse 10, both good and bad. And then I will take anyone. But in order to get into my wedding, you have to put on the robe. In order to get into my wedding, you got to put on the robe. So the liberals want to say, it's just free for anyone. The conservatives want to say, no way, it's costly to go to a wedding. You can't go to a wedding for free. And God says, it's both free and costly. It costs me everything. In order for you to stay in my wedding, you have to come and put on the robe of grace and faith in my son, Jesus Christ, and be robed with his righteousness. And when you are, you all look the same to the king. That's the gospel. It's right here. It's so subversive. It's incredible. It's a brilliant story. Well, how do I know if I've been robed with the righteousness of Jesus? How do I know that I'm not the dude in the wedding that's the imposter coming in with some false way? How do I know? Let's think about this story for a second. Let's think about grace. If you took these two classes of people, the the empire people, the prissy people, and you took on the other hand, the beggars, what happens when the turkey comes out with the prissy people as they're sipping their tea with their pinky out, right? What are they doing? The turkey's going to come out and they're like, hey, 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 is that turkey organic heirloom grass-fed turkey? Because I will not eat a butterball. What is that thing, right? What are the beggars doing? Turkey! Yeah! Woohoo! That's how you know. That's right there how you know. Yesterday, I was a beggar on 6th Street, and today, I'm dining with the king, and I cheer every single plate that comes out. Wow! More food! Wow! The mercy and grace of Jesus has brought me in. I'm a beggar at the king's table, and I have the right to be here because Jesus Christ has robed me with his righteousness. That's how you know. Just this unbelievable gratitude that you get to sit at the king's table. That's how. Such a brilliant story. Man. So that's Jesus' test. Will you be robed? Because if not, you're removed. Now they get their turn, the table's turn. And there's three tests that they give to Jesus. It's really a power test, it's an eternity test, and it's a Bible test. Power test, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Uh Uh-huh. That gives us a hint what's going to happen. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. Do they really believe that? No, they're trying to entangle him in his words. I mean, these guys are liars. And you do not care about anyone's opinion 
for you are not swayed by appearances. Now that's probably true because the Pharisees had been trying to sway him and they could not. They couldn't bully Jesus into their position. So they're probably a little bit bent on that. So that's probably true. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? No one likes to be called a hypocrite. Show me the coin for the tax, probably because he did not have one. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. There's their first good move. We're done here. <laughs> We're not going to get him. We couldn't get him with that one. That was our best. That was our ace and it didn't work. Taxes. No one likes taxes. They didn't like taxes. I've never been a young kid that wants to grow up to work for the IRS. Like taxes are the anathema. So they're bringing their A game right here. And it's really about power. And their whole goal, the whole goal, we're told it in the beginning, we're going to try to entangle him here. We're going to try to ask him a question that's going to entangle him and get him caught in his words. Don't we do that today a lot? Aren't words now, we have this, this Twitterverse, I call it, where if you say the wrong thing, man, you are completely out. Does anyone remember the name Justine Sacco? About one year ago, she was in the news everywhere, and here's why. She got on a plane out of England and was flying to Africa, and right before she left, she set up this little tweet. And it was, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, ha ha, just kidding, I'm white. And she sent it to her 170 followers. Gets on a plane, flies <laughs> 11 hours in sleep and happy, happy ignorance of what was happening down below. Because her tweet got retweeted and retweeted and became the number one tweet in the world for a, while, for a while, and she was getting death threats, and she is such a racist, and all this kind of stuff. She had no idea about it, which made it like more intriguing. So there are all these hashtags that started going around, like, when will Justine land? And they actually got these people to go to Cape Town and take pictures of her when she landed and post them on Twitter. So it was just like this massive story, all right? She made a mistake, no doubt about it. Well, out of that mistake, she lost her job, she sounds like a pretty nice girl, just made a mistake. She lost her job. She uh, has death threats still to this day. She says, I cannot date anyone. Because the first thing you do when you date somebody is, guess what? Google their name. Guess what comes up? <laughs> a lot of really bad stuff in her name. Right? All because she got entangled in her words, right? So, so that's what they're trying to do Jesus. Our, our goal is to get him to say something that then we can grab a hold of that and then we can use it to kill him. Death threats. So that's their goal. That's what they got. Now, the, the, the struggle in power is this. Do we serve God or do we serve the government? 
That's their power right here. That's their question. Deeper than just taxes, it's who is our allegiance to? Is it to God or is it to this government? And there's these two groups that come together. The Pharisees, here's what the Pharisees are. They're the hyper-fundamentalists. And they come together with the Herodians. The Herodians are the politicians. Like they could care less about morals or anything. They just were going to do whatever's going to keep them in power. It's the strangest bedfellows ever. And they come together because they both realize we need to get rid of Jesus. All right? So here's what that would be like. It'd be like being in a room, half the audience loves Hillary. The other half the audience loves Trump. Both, all of them want to kill you. And then they ask you to answer a question about Syrian refugees. You're going to die. That's what's going to happen. So that's what they think. They think we have just cornered Jesus because no matter which way he goes, we got him. If he says pay taxes, the Herodians will be happy, but we and the Pharisees will say, aha, his allegiance is to Caesar. If he says, don't pay your taxes, then he sides with the Pharisees, but then the Herodians say, arrest him because he is a rebel against the empire. So they figure, we gotcha. And what's Jesus's answer? You have dual citizenship. That's what he says. Give to Caesar what should be Caesar's and give to God what should be God's. You, kingdom people, are to have dual citizenships, that you're image bearers of God, that the way that you live your life should image bear God, but you also render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. It's both of them. And if you read Romans 12, it's like an amplification of this answer. Because in Romans 12, you have really our citizenship in heaven is this. Do not be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good, right? That's the citizenship in heaven. But then what follows Romans 12? Romans 13. What's Romans 13? The government bears the sword to punish the evildoer. Do you see the two there? My job, citizens of heaven, is what? Do not be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Government's job is what? Very different. Bear the sword, punish the evildoer, right? Same person, if you would. I get to love them. I trust the government is going to punish them. So you see it right there, that we are always to be dual citizens. The anarchy is bad. It never works out well. So, the, so God has ordained government. I, I'm glad for government. But I also know this, I, my hope for all of us for Edgewater is this, that we are the best citizens in Grants Pass. That when people think about Edgewater, they say, we are so glad they're in our town. At that group of people that love Jesus are so helpful here. But Matt, Grants Pass is so bad. (laughs) It's not that bad. And in Jeremiah, you have this great little story where Jeremiah is writing to people that are in Babylon. You want to know the worst city in the Bible? It's Babylon. Over and over, Babylon is held up as the absolute worst city in history. A bunch of God's people are in Babylon and they're saying, we just got to get out of here. In Jeremiah 29, God says to them, no, stay in that city. Pray for its peace. Plant gardens. Begin to have your kids marry. Make that city a better city. Transform Babylon. That's what really God says. That's our call in Grants Pass. We don't get out of bad stuff. 
We say, Lord, how can I be used here to plant a garden and to pray for the peace of this city? How can I be used to transform Grants Pass into what you want it to be? And so the people, verse 23, marveled. Good answer. Great answer. We are to be dual citizens. Best citizens we possibly can be of Grants Pass, of the United States. People that hate on the United States, I just say, go travel, please. Like, go to India, where where they don't have garbage service and they don't have um, proper uh, disposal of human waste. Just please go there. Because then you'll come back to the United States and be like, thank you, God, for this incredible country you allow me to live in. So, best citizens, dual citizenship. That's Jesus' answer to their test. Test number two from them. Verse 23. That same day, Sadducees came to him, just one after another, who say that there is no resurrection. This is Matthew helping us understand the context 2,000 years ago. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. That was the social net 3,500 years ago, right? A, a, A single woman would depend upon her sons for food, for housing. So it was God's social net 3,500 years ago. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven. Remember, they don't believe in the resurrection. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they have all had her. And Jesus answered them, you are wrong (laughs) because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. This test has one design. It's designed to make Jesus look dumb. The Sadducees were the educated, aristocratic, uh, powerful, wealthy crew at this time. They did not believe in miracles. They did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in most of the Bible, just the first five books of the Bible, no heaven. They were, if you would, dead orthodoxy. That's the Sadducees. So they're like people today that say, do you really believe in a devil? I mean, really? Pointy little horns and a tail? I mean, red cape? Do you really believe in it? Ah, oh, that's so silly. They're so antiquated. I mean, angels really flying around, shooting little arrows? I mean, Really? You really believe in the gift of the Spirit? Oh, come on. I bet you get a little fishy in the back of your car too, huh? <laughs> That's these guys. Mocking, and so they're really, there's this mocking behind all this. What's interesting to me is this. They put it in this way, like, okay, we have an issue with a woman having seven husbands, but they had no issue with a man having seven wives. Notice that? It's really showing hey, they couldn't tell the story that way because, oh, that's fine in heaven. It's funny. So 
What does Jesus say? You're stupid. That's what he says. It's Matt Heavily translation of the Greek right there. You're, you're wrong. You're stupid. You don't know the Bible, all right? And the reason is they had grabbed this story from an extra canonical Jewish book called the book of Tobit, where there's this woman named Sarah who has seven husbands that are all killed by a demon, right? It's just this kind of, are you kidding me? You're going to bring this up? So Jesus is just kind of like, Ugh. and his answer is this, you don't know the scriptures. Why? Because they only took the first five books of the Bible. You don't know the rest of God's revelation. You're missing out on uh, 34 other books. You don't know the scriptures, nor do you know the power of God. So because they had discounted a lot of God's revelation, they didn't know these great texts in Isaiah that talk about the renewal of all things. When a child will play with a cobra, when a lion will eat grass like an oxen, when men will no longer study war, where they will take their spears and make them into pruning hooks and their swords and make them into plowshares. They, they, they didn't know that. They didn't know like there's, there's going to be this massive change in the, the way that we exist. They didn't know any of that. So they're missing it. So here's my analogy of, I think the, the coming kingdom, you know, it's existing now. It's already not yet. But, but when it actually, when Jesus speaks about the renewal of all things, here's how I uh, process, process it in my mind. It's like a, a baby in the womb. If, you, if I could talk to a, a little baby in the womb, five months old, whatever, imagine trying to explain to a baby in the womb what it will be like when they're born. Right? There's going to be a lot of pain, okay? You're going to be squished into a cone head. But after that, wow, well, you're going to be spanked by somebody too. And, but after that, let's get after that. You're going to get in this massive place, right? Because right now it's really tight and constricting. You're like, oh man, I don't like this. But it's going to be huge. Like, you're going to believe how big it is. You're going to see things. And, and, and these things that you didn't know you even had, you're going to start using them. Your lungs, which start developing at like five or six weeks, are now full of ambiotic fluid. I mean, you're going to cough all that stuff up and you start breathing air. And this little thing that's tethered you for, for your whole life to this other life form, it's gone. We cut it. Well, don't cut it. No, it's cut. You're free. Right? You would be radical. I think that's what happens when we move from this age to the next one. Like, it, it's just, the Bible tries to just say, huh. it's like trying to explain to a baby in the womb. So the Bible just says, it's more than you can imagine. Kids are going to play with serpents. Lions are going to eat grass. Streets are going to be made of gold. Like, it's just, they're just trying to say, it's more than you, it, it's just absolutely a different place. Now, they missed all that because they took away all of this revelation from God about this beautiful coming kingdom that we are created to exist in. And these latent things in us that we don't even know they exist are going to come to full fruition and blossom in this next kingdom. It's going to be brilliant. Do you spend much time thinking about eternity? I think it's a good exercise. Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom. Kingdom, 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 kingdom. How it's going to be so different. How we're supposed to be outposts of it right now. He talks about it all the time. And I had this article that I... I love it because this guy, his name is Peter Kreeft. This is back when he was really, really good. It's called Heaven and Hell Under Every Bush. You can probably Google it. But it's from a C.S. Lewis article, and he just starts to compare like our thought of heaven to hell, and it's really cool. Listen to some of these. I just marked a few. 
Um, hell is full of long speeches that say nothing. Think commencement addresses some sermons. In heaven, one word, capital W, means everything. In hell, they talk a lot about love. In heaven, they just do it. Hell is an unending church service without God. Heaven is God without a church service. There is no music in hell, only noise, like some music here. (laughs) I really like that one. (laughs) In hell, everything is pornographic and no one is excited. In heaven, everything is exciting and there's no pornography. In hell, people are very religious and never laugh. In hell, there is sex without pleasure. In heaven, there is pleasure without sex. In heaven, a drill is a dance. In hell, a dance is a drill. On earth, liberals love questions and fear answers. And conservatives fear questions and love answers. Isn't that such a great statement? I like totally. Oh, that's, that gets it. In hell, everyone hates both. In heaven, everyone loves both. And then it ends, what well, the last thing I'll mention. Both heaven and hell will seem strangely familiar. In fact, both are retroactive. Earth is the womb of either heaven or hell. Right now, we're developing heaven or hell. Fascinating article. This is a text you should think about. What's it turning in me like? So then Jesus adds one more thing. You don't know the power of God. And he says this, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus quotes the Torah for the Sadducees. All right, you only accept these five books. I'll prove it from them. I won't go to Isaiah like I could. I'll go directly to the books that you receive. And then he talks about how God refers to himself. Ever thought through how God refers to himself here? I am the creator God. I am the almighty God. No, I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. Isn't that weird? It's weird. It's weird to refer to somebody as kind of their identity is tied to them, right? So I get that now as a dad, like, oh, that's Elijah's dad, right? That's the dad of Elijah. I grew up with this all the time because my older brother, Chris, was this kind of wild, um, charismatic guy. So I would always be referred to as, oh, he's a little brother of Chris. Like that was years of, he's a little brother of Chris. Guess what I eventually did? I'm more than that. (laughs) I'm not just a little brother of Chris. I'm also Matt Heverly, the little brother of Chris, right? You finally get kind of tired of be referring to as, what do you mean? What, What about me? Don't I have some kind of identity? But God doesn't care about that. God defines himself by his relationships. How fascinating is that? That God says what matters to me is my relationships with these guys that are my friends, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. To me, that is just unbelievable. I'm defined by who I'm in relationship with. 
That's how important they are to God. It's amazing. And, and he says, I am. Not I was. They haven't passed away. They're not gone. They're just with me now. I'm the God of the dead, but of the living. How brilliant is that? And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Last test. But when the Pharisees heard it, heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Okay, huddle, time out. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We looked at this on Sunday. Just a phenomenal summarization of what we're to be about. And I could say Sunday would have been real simple. Love acts. Isn't that 1 Corinthians 13? It's not a feeling. It's not a casual preference. It's not all these other things. Love acts. It acts kindly, patiently, believingly, hopefully. It's an action. Love is action. I think we know that. Like I I learned this from my wife, um, that that my wife finds certain things, um, and I'll just use sexy, that my children being bathed and put into bed, my wife finds that sexy. So sometimes my kids get like 10 baths. Like they're really clean, sweetie. <laughs> it's that action of saying, hey, I'm going to demonstrate how important you are to me. Not by saying words as important as those are, but by demonstrating with action, treating you in a certain way. It love acts. This is another text. You can just meditate on what does that mean how do I love God with my whole essence? How do I do that? How do I love my neighbor as myself? Just brilliant. You can pray and for wisdom, always remembering that you're a beggar invited off G Street to the table of the king, and you're worthy to sit there because of the work of Jesus. And that's your motivation for acting out in love. Hmm, brilliant. So then Jesus says, okay, my turn. Now, verse 41, when the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. (laughs) They want to entangle Jesus. Guess what Jesus does? Springs a trap on them. Saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They're probably like, oh my goodness, this is so awesome, so easy. Just walking into his entanglement. And they said, oh, the son of David, piece of cake. So he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. I just love that. We're done. Okay. We have failed. Let's just go kill him. That's what we got to do now. Since we can't trick him, we just got to kill him. I mean, it's just so awesome. So here's Jesus's test. 
And I, I, I love verse 43 because Jesus says this, how is it then that David in the spirit? What book is he referring to? Psalms. What didn't the Sadducees believe was inspired by God's spirit? Psalms. Jesus is saying when David wrote the Psalms, he was inspired by God's spirit. Inspiration. And, and here's the simple test. Jesus is saying, who am I? Right? Who am I? Am I just the son of David? Or am I more? Am I just a teacher or a prophet or a sage? Or am I the Lord, the son of David? What do you get in both of those? He's both Lord and the son of David. Isn't that the incarnation? It's absolutely the incarnation. How can he be both Lord and a son? Great is this mystery that God was manifest in the flesh and dwelt among us, right? But unto you, a son is born. And what is he going to be called? The Almighty Father. What? <laughs> a son, what in the world, right? These perplexing texts. Jesus is saying, really right here, he's saying, I'm the king that invites you in. I'm the God that created everything. The ticket for these guys, Jesus is not rejecting them here. What is he doing? He's saying, here's the golden ticket. I don't want you to be cast out. I don't want this city to be destroyed. I don't want that to all happen. Here's your way in. Here's your way in. Here's your ticket. Here's how to be clothed with righteousness. That's what he's doing. It's the same thing for us today. Romans 10, 9. Right? If you believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just Jesus, not just Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. God in the flesh, taking our place, punching our ticket so that we could come in off the streets as beggars and sit with the king and dine with him for eternity. It's the gospel. And Jesus is extending that right now to these people that want to kill him. Listen, guys, here's the answer. This is the only test that matters. Get this right and you're in. So Father, I just thank you for this brilliant chapter. May we never forget that we were invited off the streets into the greatest feast ever and robed by the work of your son, Jesus Christ. May we never forget that our response is to be loving you supremely and loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's the gospel. That's the full gospel. So this day, Lord, as we partake in the elements, your body, your blood, the king who died so that we could come to the wedding feast, the God who stepped out of glory and heaven and comfort, lived among us, walked with us, loved us, died for us. As we take those elements that remind us of that, Lord, I pray that even tonight we would feast, that we would celebrate. Are you kidding? We get to dine with the king. There's turkey that we would remember 
and be moved by your grace and mercy throughout every day of our lives. Seeing your goodness and seeing your generosity in the beauty, in the relationships, that we would realize we're sitting with the king. So help us in that, Lord. Fill us and empower us, Lord, with your body and with your forgiveness that comes through your blood. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So they're going to hand out communion. We'll take it together. We've read enough of Matthew to know that Jesus goes to a lot of feasts. I think you could summarize the Gospels as Jesus is always eating with the wrong people. And it makes the right people mad all the time. What? He should be eating with us. He's feasting. For me, communion is always an enigma. Because growing up, it was somber and reflective. And make sure you're worthy and purge yourself. And I think communion should be a celebration. We've been invited into the wedding feast. The fatted calf is ready. We get to sit with the king. Oh my goodness. Why? Man, I was on 6th Street as a beggar. That's not me. I'm not worthy. You look deep enough, you're going to find a sin in me. But I was given a robe by the king. And that's why I get to come in. So I want you to take 30 seconds. I want you to just express thanksgiving for the generosity of our king. Just think through your day even. What's gone right? What's been beautiful? What's been true? What's been lovely? What's been pure? What's been praiseworthy? That's what we're supposed to be doing.